You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Episode 109, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Tim Heinmarsh. Dr. Heinmarsh is the co-host, along with his wife, of BS Free MD, which is a new podcast on the Doctor Podcast Network, which joins The Paradox and many others. He's a family physician who's done a lot of research on the new COVID-19 vaccines. And we're going to talk about the vaccines that roll out now as we enter into their distribution. As of now, when I'm recording on December 17th, 2020, and we're going to discuss the vaccines, science behind it, how it works, concerns we might have, and who we think should and should not get the vaccine, along with a broad strategy on treatment of the COVID vaccine going forward. This episode is being brought to you by the Doctors Unbound podcast. Check out the show for fascinating interviews that show how physicians are making an impact outside of the hospital or clinic, whether it's founding a health tech company, running for public office, or starting a nonprofit. Tune in to the Doctors Unbound podcast for weekly stories that will uplift and inspire you. And if you're interested in financial literacy and independence, Dr. Dave regularly covers those topics as he and his family are on their very own journey of achieving financial independence with short-term rentals. Subscribe to Doctors Unbound for free wherever you listen to podcasts. Additionally, if you're not a subscriber to this show, be sure to subscribe to The Paradox on whatever podcast player you like to use most. As we approach the end of this challenging year, 2020, I just want to say thanks to everyone who listens to the show, those who support the show on Patreon, which is, you can go to patreon.com slash the paradox, which helps pay for the production and promotion of the show. But specifically, those of you who listen and share, I really appreciate it. I would encourage you if you have a show idea or a question you want answered, please email the show at the paradox show at protonmail.com. You can find a link to that on the website, paradox.com. Please visit the paradox.com slash 109 for show notes and links to this show and other things that relate to this episode. If you've not yet listened to the show much, if this is your first time, I encourage you to go back over the titles, find a couple that you like, and take a listen to a couple of them, and please leave a review on iTunes or whatever podcast player you use. I always appreciate five stars, and a written review is always helpful. But without further ado, discussion on the COVID-19 vaccines and their rollout. Enjoy. Well, I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Tim Heinmarsh. He's a family physician who does urgent care out in Eugene, Oregon, and he is the... Uh, co-host of BS Free MD, which he does with his wife. It's a podcast that's also on the Doctor Podcast Network. And today we're going to talk about something that we haven't talked about in eh, quite a few weeks, I guess, in the show, which I've been doing a job uh, avoiding talking about COVID-19. But we're going to talk about the vaccine since it's now rolling out here at mid-December. And so, Dr. Heimrich, thanks so much for joining the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, my pleasure. And well, let's just jump right into it because I know you've done a lot of research in the uh, vaccine and Let's just talk about, I guess, let's start with the primer and sort of what is the vaccine? How does it work? And we'll talk about the ones that are launching here in the United States, which are Pfizer's and Moderna's. And I don't even think we need to talk about AstraZeneca, but that's probably the, the next one on the horizon, which I don't know, maybe a month or two from now. Yeah, I'd like to, if you don't mind, just preface it a little bit as far as if you look at, I, I did a, a, another talk several years ago and I looked and the thing that struck me is in 1800, 30% of all deaths were children five years old and, and younger which is, would be a complete anathema to our thinking now. And then, of course, the logical question is, well, what happened? Well, three things happened. Number one, we got sewage treatment plants, which you know changed the world as far as 
you know, uh, recurrent infections like cholera. Number two, we got vaccinations of children, which was a huge game changer, probably the single greatest medical technology in the history of mankind, which, you know, started with, with Jenner back in the late 1700s. And then, you know, antibiotics. And so, you know, vaccines are a big deal. They've saved, you know, at least as far as other than sanitation, probably the most number of people in the world. Uh, I don't think there's any question. Sure. Of that. And so, you know, we've, be, we've become so used to, to, you know, people being relatively healthy to children surviving their young years without getting diphtheria or, you know, measles or mumps or, you know, homophilus influenza or any of these terrible things that, you know, even some of the anti-vaxxer stuff, I think, is, is, a, is, is proof of the effectiveness of vaccines because no one has any even archetypical memory of what it was like before we had vaccines. Right. And the fact that, you know, if you had four kids, you were going to probably bury one or two of them. I mean, that was, I mean, my, that, my grandparents immigrated to Canada from Russia at the turn of the last century in 1900. And, you know, they buried their brothers and sisters because that's what happened when you lived out in the middle of nowhere with no healthcare and no vaccines. So, um, you know, we're going to talk about some pros and cons today, I would assume. Uh, and so I think it's important, I think, historically to understand, you know, vaccines are a huge deal and they are absolute world changers. No question. Yeah. But, well, I think that's an important point to, to start with, because I think it's you know, when you look at what is um, expected as far as life course, I don't think many people have any sort of expectation for not outliving their ch or for their, their children not outliving them. Right. I think that's um, th that's something that was not probably present even 150, 100 years ago, really. I mean, it was even the early 1900s. Right. It was not as. It was not the expectation was that things could happen to kids with infections, diseases, and it just infectious diseases are just not a major killer now. Right. And, you know, the other thing I did obstetrics for, you know, 12 years of my career is if you were a male and you were you made it to 40 or 45, you probably were married more than once because you lost a, a wife in childbirth. Right. You know, from an infection or from bleeding to death. I mean, that was very common. I mean, I used to tell patients very sarcastically that it was sort of fair. Women died in childbirth, but men died in wars. Because, you know, there somebody was always, you know, fighting somebody with a sword, you know, <laughs> and now, you, you know, now women still have, have the burden of childbirth. And, you know, we don't we don't fight as many wars, at least, you know, in a feudal system like we used to. Right. So let's talk about the the messenger RNA, because the, the big um, well, the big story, I guess, really, is that we have basically a new platform for delivering a vaccine, which is a messenger RNA. Um, as we've talked about on the show before, RNA is what the viruses are coded on. So it's not, they don't use DNA, they use RNA. Uh, and then that gets into the cells that makes your, tricks your cells into basically producing new viruses. And then they circulate in the bloodstream and that's sort of how viruses work. So explain the mRNA RNA process. Yeah, I mean, this one, there's been a tremendous amount of misinformation out there that somehow this messenger RNA encodes into your DNA. Nothing could be further th from the truth. There definitely are viruses that encode into your DNA, for instance, you know, HPV, which is why it can increase risk for, uh, you know, cervical cancer and so forth. But the messenger RNA is just a messenger piece. So it goes in to this, into the cell. It hooks up to the ribosomes, the factories of the cell. It gives the information to the ribosomes, which then make, you know, in this case, the spike proteins of uh, COVID-19, which then become the antigen that we produce an immune response to both from, you know, T and B cell immunity, um, mediated immunity as well as antibodies. So it's an incredibly s elegant system in its simplicity because we just take a little piece of genetic information, let your body produce the antigen, and then, you know, you're off to the races as far as a vaccine. Um, mRNA, messenger RNA technology really opens a huge door of all sorts of other uh, potential technologies downstream, cancer, uh, cancer vaccines, the ability to put, you know, a vaccine in with mRNA that then produces a protein that somebody lacks. I mean, there's all sorts of interesting stuff. And I think these vaccines will help open that door as people will gain confidence with this technology. Yeah, I think that's key. And so I guess you know, to go through some terminology for those who are not familiar, an antigen is a, some sort of protein that is recognized by your body as foreign, we'll just say. And so then it creates antibodies to sort of lock into the antigens and recognize as a, as a way, basically a way of recognizing that it's foreign. And so that it starts the immune response. 
B cell and T cell immunity. I, you know, I think that we're starting to, people just throwing these terms around. I think, you know, no one really talked about these cells uh, since we started really talking about HIV back in the eighties. But T cells are, they provide the long-term memory for the, for the body, for its immune system. And so it's probably important not just to have antibodies, which I think we'll test antibodies. And you may have heard that you can get, go to the, you know, the lab and get an antibody test to see if you have SARS-CoV-2 antibodies. Uh, But that, you know, if you, even if you lose your antibodies, no longer have them, there's probably some sort of immunity that is, that is, that you still have. And that's with, that's stored in these T cells, which can then at some point convince your B cells to produce more antibodies. And, um, and so I think that's probably one of the things when it comes to the messenger RNA, the platform is that it, it's different in that it's sort of, it sort of encompasses the entire immune system, I guess, in, in a way of finding the virus. Whereas sometimes with the other vaccines, like the live attenuated or attenuated ones, you get kind of a, a partial one. Uh, and so it's probably more robust immunity, I would think, like a natural infection. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And again, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert virologist, but I think if you look at, uh, there's essentially five different types of vaccines that have been worked, like classes that have been worked on for COVID-19. And it's, it's quite interesting because these two, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which are the genetic vaccines or the really misnamed, because it sounds like you're messing with people's genetics, but they're messenger, they more correctly are messenger RNA vaccines. Um, seem to have produced the most robust immune response. Uh, probably next would be the viral vector vaccines, which, you know, the popular one there has been the AstraZeneca vaccine, where they take an adenovirus or a cold virus, and then they tag it uh, with uh, so that the virus itself replicates and then produces uh, COVID um, spike proteins as well. That seems to have had a lot more side effects. And then there has been a couple different uh, attenuated attempts at attenuated COVID-19 vaccines. And those were sent to, uh, those were widely distributed in China and Russia. And of course we've heard nothing about that because we tried that with MERS and SARS, uh, like the original SARS and they, they didn't work. Or more importantly, some of them appeared to make, uh, produce an immune response that actually made you more susceptible to native infection, right? not less, which is, the worst case scenario, obviously. So then I think we'll look at it in the two parts, because I think when it comes to people, when they're going to get the vaccine, um, whatever it might be, you're getting one of two vaccines in the United States. You're going to get the, the messenger RNA, well, they're all messenger RNA, the genetic ones, but one, just the different vector and how it gets into your cells. One is the lipid nanoparticle, the one that's Pfizer and and, um, and Moderna. And the other one would be the, uh, the AstraZeneca. And I think Johnson Johnson also uses adenovirus too as a vector. And to be clear, there. Are, so I think the thing that's really tricky about this is that there are there are lots of coronaviruses. For instance, there are four that are endemic in humans, and SARS-CoV-2 will almost certainly, and I've talked about this before in the show, uh, will almost certainly be the fifth endemic coronavirus that will be present for the rest of our lives and for all of humanity probably until we decide to somehow figure out a way to eradicate them. Uh, but there are hundreds, if not thousands, of different coronaviruses, adenoviruses. They're species specific, meaning that they can only be held in one species, and be, and tra- and they can or they can transmit to other species that are generally dead ends because they don't have the right receptors. And so, I think the AstraZeneca and the Johnson Johnson. I don't know if they use the same adenovirus, but I think they use primate adenoviruses that are unable to. Then you're unable to infect someone else with it. But I think that's there's a lot of concern or sort of misinformation in that sense too. It it is an adenovirus that's kind of you're as a human you're a dead end host, and so basically it just comes in and just produces. No, no real significant symptoms, but it just produces these proteins is kind of what happens. You're, you're a dead end host as far as we know right now. Right. Which is probably probably forever. I mean, it's like avian flu, right? Like the biggest fear was, you know, avian flu, which has what, 70, 75 percent lethality in, you know, in humans, but was only transmitted from birds to humans, but never from birds to humans and then humans to humans, which and that's the other thing. Coronaviruses have this huge animal reservoir. Where you know bats and whatever pangolins or whatever animals get it, but they don't get you know they don't necessarily get ill, so it's just endemic in their system, and they can transmit it to humans. And then, in this situation, of course, humans can transmit it to each other very effectively, actually. Yeah, no, it's it's really remarkable. And I think you know we, I've talked about MERS as well. That's one in camels, and and you can get when you, you can be a your dead end host as a human, but it can make you very sick. Um, and and we've already seen 
many examples, I think, of other animals and species getting SARS-CoV-2 from humans. And I think cats seem to be more susceptible to felines, but they don't seem to get super sick, is my impression. Um, and also, there's been no signs that they're a reservoir, meaning they can tra transmit to other cats and then back to humans. And so it seems like this is kind of a dead-end virus in that sense that just is stuck in humans, which <laughs> doesn't really help us. <laughs> but um, So then when we talk about the, the mRNA, what do you know about the the way it gets into the cells, because I think that's kind of, that's very interesting because you can give someone a vaccine, but if it doesn't get into cells and actually start producing those proteins. It doesn't really, you know, do any good. Yeah. I mean, my rudimentary understanding of that is, and this was the challenge. I mean, Moderna has been around for a while and they've been working on this technology for at least 10 years, if not longer, um, which is trying to keep the MRNA stable. Because if you just inject mRNA into somebody, your body will just basically consume it and it does nothing. Right. It has to get to the right place. It has to get into that cellular cytoplasm, get next to, you know, be able to hook onto ribosomes and, and use your cellular factory, so to speak. So they have this like cholesterol core that they somehow manage to synthesize where the mRNA floats in this little lipid core, which protects it. And then it's able to you know, I'm not uh, the exact scientific mechanism as far as how the cholesterol, I would assume it, you know, is able to uh, be absorbed by the cell wall, which is also lipid. Right. And then and then you're off to the races. Then the core has gone or the uh, I'm sorry, the the carrier mechanism is gone and the all that's left is the mRNA. And then that produces the spike proteins and then it just gets consumed because it's useless to your cells. Otherwise, uh, is my understanding. And so from that point. That part seems safe. I, I I do have a couple concerns, which I'm sure you'll ask me. <laughs> and uh, but again, I think long term this is going to be a, a total winner. And this we we may be talking ten years from now um, about mRNA therapies and completely forget that it started here. Yeah, no, I think I, so too. Yeah, and I wouldn't be least bit surprised if that's the case. And I wouldn't be surprised as well if ten years from now almost all vaccines are delivered the same the same way like i mean it's uh, very conceivable to think that you can um do a flu vaccines this way too because right now the way flu vaccines are produced is you have it takes so long to produce them because they're i think grown in culture of some sort and it takes a long time to produce enough vaccines to to administer you know the united states right so they have to guess what strains are going to be more likely to hit the united states and you predict that you know a year in advance well I don't know what the how how good they are predicting the weather where you are in Eugene, but in Michigan, it's really difficult, right? And so you can imagine trying to predict what strains are actually going to make it across because there are tons of different infectious flu strains. But now you can produce this so quickly, which is remarkable. I mean, it you're seeing how fast they can produce millions of doses of this uh, RNA. And the tricky thing, as you mentioned, is the is how to keep it stable. And it it is um, as you know with viruses, they are very weak and wimpy, right? Like as soon as you cough, most of them die in the air. They're killed by sunlight. I mean, everything. They're like super wimpy because the RNA just disintegrates easily. But that's why it's, um, they have to, you know, massive doses to actually get into you and infect you. But um, with this, like the super cooling and all this, these processes, it manages to keep this RNA stable in order to give it to you as a vaccine. So you mentioned, right? You mentioned your concerns. What are your concerns? Because, you know, if you look at the Operation Warp Speed, it clearly was done, I don't know, properly. I guess I'd say it, maybe it's the right, I don't know if that's the right term, but I mean, it was not like there were phases of the studies that were skipped. We didn't skip phase one, phase two, phase three trials. We did those in the normal order. The difference, of course, is that we have no long-term studies. We don't, you know, it's only, the vaccine's only been around in people for a couple months. So we certainly don't know the durability, how long you're going to maintain your immunity. And we also don't know, um, you know, if there are any sort of long-term effects from the virus. And so why don't you go ahead and talk about what your concerns would be, I guess, with the, the, vi the vaccine? Yeah, I mean, the only, I, I have two concerns. The, the first is, again, time. Um, there, you know, there is a phenomenon called uh, vaccine-associated disease enhancement. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, um, where, you know, you get either a suboptimal antibody response or you get certain antibodies that, that bind in a certain way, which actually enhance the, the transmissibility or the entrance into your cells of the, of the virus. And it's happened, most notably when they tried to produce um, an RSV vaccine for kids, 
you know, devastating illness in, in infants. And they, they notice, you know, hey, this produces antibodies. It appears that it's going to be a robust immune response. But then the kids that were vaccinated had a significantly, significantly more severe illness when they were exposed to the native uh, virus, you know, just naturally. And so, you know, the challenge in producing a vaccine is you need a lot of safety because you're giving it to healthy people and you're giving it to a lot of healthy people, right. like in this billions of healthy people. So if you look at the Pfizer study in particular, you have 43,000 people in the study and you had about 200 infections. So you had 190 infections in the placebo group and you had 10 infections in the treatment group. So that gives you, you know, robust numbers from a P you know, P value perspective, 95% effective, et cetera, et cetera. didn't happen by chance, but the power of that is still only 200 infections. And, and, you know, if you look at the placebo group, that's only 0.7% of people um, out of that 43,000 that actually got a significant, you know, significant enough symptoms to be, you know, in the trial, in the trial as a positive. And so that, you know, that, that kind of concerns me because that's not huge numbers. Um, you got to remember that this is an emergency use authorization, which only help happens in an emergency, in a Thanks, national yeah. emergency. This is not fully approved. Uh, most vaccines take 10 or 12 years to develop because they want the long-term studies. We want to make sure that, you know, six months from now or a year from now as antibody antibodies wane or potential potency of the vaccine wanes that when you're exposed to native virus at that time, that it doesn't do something weird. We just don't know that. I mean, from the studies, it doesn't appear that people got more ill. I mean, at all. I mean, they got initial side effects, which you would expect with a, with a um, antigen and antibody response. But again, the long-term part, we really don't know. And this truly is used in an emergency. And I, I guess one of the other things, I, you know, the concern I have is, you know, as a primary care doctor sitting down with somebody who's, you know, 25 years old, who has virtually zero risk of, of significant illness or death from COVID saying, hey, you need a vaccine. Well, would I need a vaccine for something that essentially, you know, for 80, 85% of people is, is not very severe. I mean, I know there's the population health, which is, I guess, what this is all about. But still, I mean, they're absorbing some risk of the unknown for very little benefit. And, I, you know, I think ethically we need to scratch our heads and at least at least address that. I share your uh, concern, I guess I'd say. And the numbers are small <clears throat> because it is early, right? I mean, we don't, we don't have very many uh, infections. I imagine right now if they look at the numbers, they're probably two, three, four times what they were just because um, they it's with a huge spike you're seeing in the country all, you know, all over with the infection, the, the likelihood that more people have been infected and have come up positive has probably gone up quite a bit. And so they probably were going to have better numbers. I don't know how often they have to report those numbers. I'm guessing every couple months or something. I'm not sure what the FDA requires, but I imagine they'll continue following those. Um, so I think that'll probably, we'll have a better idea. The nice thing too is we have, you know, three months from now, we're going to have a much better idea as well. Uh, so the numbers are, are low. And and yes, I think the, the, uh, the risk-benefit ratio is something we really need to discuss because I think many times throughout this, this pandemic, I, we don't, we're not really having that discussion. And I think, you know, we can have the discussion on a health basis, but I think there's far more to things than just the health, right? I think, you know, we say, well, we got to close down all the schools in order to keep the population healthy. Well, there are significant side effects to closing down the schools. And I think, you know, we rarely, we rarely consider what the, the ramifications are for not having schools open. And, you know, from a mental health standpoint, I mean, I tell a sad story. I know someone who had a patient who, try to commit suicide uh, who's a high school athlete because they didn't they lost their sports and they sort of that was kind of like the only thing they had going for them and uh, and that's a real thing i mean so i think we can't discount that as far as a risk do you know the uh the approval process and i don't i don't know this and i because i know there's emergency use authorization it's unlikely that any business would be able to compel someone or make the vaccine mandatory until such time as the fda actually approves it i would suspect that'd be still a couple years wouldn't you think well yeah who knows I, i've actually been following several different therapeutic agents I'm, I'm big on therapeutics because we still have really sick people in the hospital and the vaccine doesn't do anything for them there's been a lot of drugs that had got the emergency use authorization and basically all you need to get that is it need, you need to show reasonable safety yeah. and a reasonable chance that it does something positive 
So if you have a really safe drug that's kind of sort of maybe works, then you have a pretty good chance of getting it, you know, which is exactly what happened with hydroxychloroquine. Initially, you know, it'd been used in, in various different, you know, viral arenas. It might've worked super long safety record. So it was very easy for it to get an EUA. And then eventually as you open up the use and physicians get used to it, you get bigger studies and it's like, yeah, no, it, that, it didn't work, which is, you know, how most studies are, right? They look great at the beginning and they look terrible at the end. And so that's the EUA start. The, the approval part though is, I mean, that's a whole other level. Um, and there's really, there's been only one therapeutic in the United States that's been granted full approval and that was remdesivir. But it, it's had, again, a track record in other illnesses for, I don't know, what, eight, nine years. They even used it, I think, in Ebola. So it's been it's been around for a while. So the safety part of it was was good. But again, FDA said that, you know, what it showed is that you had, what, four or five days less hospitalization. Yeah. And the who didn't said it doesn't make any difference. And I mean, you might get out of the hospital sooner, but the people that are going to die are going to die anyways. It doesn't save anyone's life. So for what and it got approved. I would be floored personally, just seeing kind of how the political climate is with this. If, if you know, we give this to 50 or 100 million Americans in the next 10 months and the data looks good, it's going to get a full approval. I don't think it's going to take two or three years. I think it'll be done by the end of the year. Yeah. Well, and I guess you'd say, well, if you have 50, 100 million Americans and there's no evidence that there's any sort of, you know, serious problems, then you'd say, well, it should get approved. <laughs> it shouldn't take yeah. 10 years, right? Right. I mean, and we've approved way worse things than this in, in actuality. I mean, if you look at the history of, of drug approvals, <laughs> I mean, you know, FenFen comes to mind in, in a big hurry. I mean, how, and, and, you know, it, it takes time for this to evolve. It takes, I mean, really, you, you don't really, really know how something is going to work in a, in a giant population until you give it to a giant population. I mean, that's just the way it is. You can only test so much. And then eventually, you know, you, you have to go, okay, the risk benefit seems good and away you go. Yeah. Well, we have this in, in a, there's so many things in medicine that are like this. So when you have, when you're looking for a super rare condition or, or disease, uh, which a lot of these vaccine reactions that you'd worry about are extremely rare, extraordinarily rare. They can happen anytime. Like you can get Bell's palsy. You can get, well, it's just not that rare, but you can get something like a Guillain-Barre. You can get a transverse myelitis, which are the things you worry about. These auto, sort of autoimmune crazy reactions that you get that post viral, um, or, you know, maybe it could be related to an autoimmune reaction from a vaccine, well, you're not, if the population, if the, if it's normal occurrence is like one in a million, you have to have, well, probably at least a million people, if not more, who actually are getting whatever the, the treatment is in order to find out if there's any increase in incidences, right? Because people are going to still get those things that are rare at that usual rare rate, but to actually know that it's being caused by something else, you have to have millions and millions more. And so we have this in, in anesthesia where epidural hematomas, which is where you get a, a collection of blood around your spinal cord, it can happen spontaneously. We don't know why in people normally walking around. And actually, and so then we do all sorts of procedures around the spinal cord, like putting epidurals in or things like that. And what, what increases the instance of that? It's so hard to do any sort of study to find it because you have to have such a gigantic study to find something that is so small, right? And so a lot of these things, it, it will take tens, if not hundreds of millions of doses to actually find anything that's super rare, most likely. Uh, for sure. For sure. And, and, and actually, that's what I mean, I was very, very skeptical initially. And then the more I researched it, um, the the happier I was. Um, again, the numbers are still exceedingly small as far as what they used for the application for the EUA. But again, daily, that's exploding as far as, as numbers and, and as data. Um, the work that I do and where I live, it looks like I'm not even going to have an opportunity to get this for at least a month, which actually makes me really happy. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I didn't necessarily be the first kid on the block uh, to get it, but I don't necessarily want to be the last either. A month from now, I mean, how many doses are we going to have given? I mean, Pfizer signed a contract for 100 million doses by the end of December, you know, was their kind of goal. Um, and that's two weeks from now. So uh, and then Moderna is going to be rolled out and Moderna is going to be a much easier vaccine to deal with because it only has to be stored at minus four Fahrenheit instead of minus 94. So, I mean, that's essentially a crappy cooler and some dry ice compared to a $12,000 uh, mobile uh, refrigeration unit. Yeah. I'm impressed as a Canadian that you got the Fahrenheit there too. Um, so, a long time. <laughs> so, I think that's a, that's an important point. And that's a, the question I get all the time at the hospital. So I, 
I've been sort of reticent in talking about vaccines just because, um, you know, I was very skeptical that it would want to come out this quickly and that it'd be effective and that it would be as effective as it appears to be. I mean, we obviously won't know really for a while if those numbers hold up, but they are, you look at the, you look at the data and it's very promising. I mean, I think the things we don't know about the vaccine, which we'll find out over time, like if you can still infect other people, if it prevents infection, if how long the antibodies are good for, blah, blah, blah. But it certainly seems like at a minimum, it's it's going to cause, uh, it'll it'll at least make it so the disease is less severe, which it has a disease modulating effect, which is kind of what we hope for at a minimum, that you get the vaccine, sure, you get COVID-19, but you're not, you don't end up in the hospital or you don't end up on oxygen or there's some sort of thing that... You don't, you know, you don't end up as sick. You don't end up in the ICU, which is, I mean, if that's all it did, that'd be a rousing success, right? I mean, because honestly, if we just keep everyone out of the hospital, we don't really care if people get colds, <laughs> it's, you know, it doesn't really matter. No, exactly. I mean, if, if you could present, pre, you know, prevent, you know, even 50% of your hospitalizations, that, that would be a, a raging success because you still, you know, 80 to 85% of people that, that get infected with this have no symptoms or minimal symptoms. And so... It, you know, it's the hospitalizations. It's the, it's the rare, it's, you know, the 40 year old lawyer that I read about from, you know, San Francisco that was on ECMO for three months. I mean, it's those cases where we don't know what we you know, what is the susceptibility that makes certain people really sick, even with no health problems. And then, you know, you have the morbidly obese diabetic with high blood sugars that are uncontrolled. Those people are, you know, that's like the worst of the worst as far as, you know, measurable risk factors. But there's, a, there's a lot of kind of, you know, everyone's heard the stories of the, you know, the younger person. And, and that's the part It's like, you know, what if this thing mutates before we get it under control? What if it changes to be more like original SARS or MERS? I mean, I think that's unlikely. I mean, they mutate quickly. Most of the time a virus mutates, it mutates and becomes less virulent and less dangerous to, to just by pure odds. Yeah. You know, there's, 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 you know, it's still concern, obviously. I think that's why actually the, the importance of having the vaccine targeted towards the spike protein, which is which is what is on co sort of coding the virus, it's sort of the the key to get in the the lock, which is the ACE receptors into cells, and so it'd be hard to imagine that the virus should mutate so much that it almost have to change its way of getting into the cells, probably. So probably it probably still affect a vaccine, but you don't know until you know time passes. Um, so I think you know the risk benefit analysis. Getting back to that is probably an important thing to look at because. If you're 65 and you've got some comorbidities, I think it's a no-brainer, right? I mean, you have a vaccine that we don't know for sure if it's going to cause any side effects or problems down the line, but almost certainly, you know, if you get, if you're, what, 75 and you get COVID, your mortality rate's like, what, 6% or something like that? Uh, if you got a mor morbidity. Or I mean, compared to a, to somebody in their 20s or 30s that's healthy, it's, you know, it's orders of magnitude. I mean, it, you know, so... Yes. I mean, and that, and that was my thing. I mean, you know, when I discuss this with people, it's it's not the same for everybody. I mean, this isn't polio where, you know, if you're a child that was naive and had zero antibodies to polio, I mean, you were you were low hanging fruit for being attacked by polio and, and the consequences were just absolutely devastating. So, you know, again, the 25 year old athlete, it's hard to have that conversation and say, you know, yeah, we you know, we only have six, seven months of data. We don't know, but, you know, you might be helping out your 90-year-old grandmother. Now, my mother's 91. Would I take it if I was 91? I'd be the first person in line. I mean, that's a <laughs> no-brainer. Like, absolutely, you know, you have less, uh, uh, you know, uh, if it did cause some long-term problem down the road, well, you know, you're not going to be 130, you know? So it's, so, so it really is different. Uh, you know, if I was morbidly obese and 10 years older than I am now and I had out-of-control diabetes, would I take it? Absolutely. Would even think twice. I think... I think the the risk is small. I think it is real. I think the numbers are low. So it, it, we should have some pause and, you know, questioning something that's new, I think makes us wise. It doesn't make us anti-vaxxers. And I've seen that too, where somehow, you know, if you have any question about the vaccine, then, you know, you don't want your kids, to, you know, to get MMR or something. And it's like, personally for myself, I couldn't be further from the truth. It's just, you know, these things usually take a long time. We did this. It's remarkable. I mean, this is the Apollo space program. But when the Apollo space program goes bad, three guys die, not 300 million. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? Yeah, and I, and I think so that I, I, I the way the vaccine is going to roll it, I think is actually very helpful in the sense that the 
the people who are most susceptible are the ones who are going to get it first, which I mean, makes sense, but also they're the ones from a risk benefit and analysis, it makes, it's easy for them to make the decision because again, if they're long-term, they're not, they don't have as much long, as long to live anyway. And also the risk is so much higher. The question comes down to if, when it gets to the 16 year olds, when it gets down to, they say they've had some trials and they have kids, you know, you have a pediatric population that basically has no, no risk. I mean, I don't want to say zero because yes, there are headlines. There are kids who have, who have um, died from this, but hardly any, most of them don't get very sick. Um, and if we want to be honest with ourselves and then, um, so how important is it for them to get it? If you're looking, if you're doing it from a population standpoint, well, that's a, that's a hard way to, that's a hard way to convince a parent that they should, that, uh, Timmy should get this when he's eight, when, if he gets it, he'll probably, you won't even know he has it. Right. Or, uh, yeah. right. And I think, I think there's sort of a logical, there's a logical line. Um, if, if you're in a demographic where your risk from influenza dying from influenza or having significant infant, you know, illness from influenza is higher than COVID. You know, we've had flu vaccines for a long time. They're not as elegant. Like you said, I, I agree with you. I think this technology will probably be proven to be safe and will, will revolutionize how vaccines are given, but that's years away, mm -hmm. decades. And, and so, you know, clearly in children, I think it's easy to say influenza is more dangerous for kids than COVID-19 especially for, you know, under 15 years old. So it would be really hard to have a mass um, vaccination campaign in, in, in that situation. Um, you know, especially when you look at like they had a, they had a study in uh, Iceland where they tested virtually the entire population yeah. and they didn't find a single case of vertical transmission from a child to an adult. Every other, every case was from an adult to a child. So yes, they can be a vector. They don't appear to be a significant vector. Um, you know, not like a bunch of old people in a gigantic crowd singing. I mean, that's, you know, you've heard those horror stories. They're the worst of the worst, especially early in the pandemic. Even 55. Uh, I mean, I spent two and a half hours looking through the CDC data as far as the demographics when it came out. I think that was the end of July or beginning of August. If you want to cure for insomnia, read those numbers. I mean, it is <laughs> horrific. But it was fascinating. Um, the interesting thing in there, because that's where everyone said, oh, you know, only 6% of people had just COVID, which was complete nonsense. Because you could make the argument that that 6% was just incorrectly filled out death certificates because COVID doesn't kill anybody. What kills you is the complications of COVID like, you know, ARDS or acute respiratory failure or whatever. Blood clots, yeah, right. You know, like pick, pick your terrible thing. But, but, but the interesting stat in there was just looking at the demographic data. And if you were under 55, I think there was only 1,400 and like four, just under 15,000 fatalities. In, in the entire country under 55. And if, if you look at that data in a slightly different way, that's roughly in a seven month period, about half the number of the entire population that would have been killed in car wrecks. Yeah. So, you know, cause we kill about 50 to 60,000 people a year in, in, in you know, car wrecks. It, it, it makes it tough. I mean, there's definitely a demographic where this is bad and there's definitely a subset of people, which we have very little information on why they get really sick. So it makes it, I think the initial rollout, like you said, is going to be really easy. I mean, really easy. The sickest people, the people that have the highest level of exposure, like if you're working in an ICU and then if you're, I mean, I, we work in essentially a, um, I work most of my time in a respiratory clinic. So we've had tons of positive, <laughs> yeah. positive exposures compared to not, um, you know, just general population. So I, you know, that stuff I think becomes easy. It's going to be difficult in six to seven months from now, I think to go, you know, how many other people are going to be willing to take it, especially if it's not fully approved. I mean, I think you're right. It's technically experimental. How do you tell somebody they can't work without an experimental medication? I just, I can't believe you can do that. Yeah. And, and so I think, you know, if you look at coronavirus and then we'll go into, just talk about policy just a little bit. So the way I look at it is if you're looking, talking about coronavirus and COVID-19, you're talking about people who are dying, people who are having significant mor morbidity or mortality from it, right? That's what you care about. So again, if people get cold, if everybody got it and the worst that anything happened was a cold, no one cares. You miss a day of work, two days of work or something. No one cares. It doesn't matter. We can spread it a million times. It doesn't make a difference. But if we're, you know, people fill up at the hospital, if people are dying from this or having significant, you know, pulmonary problems or heart disease or something like that, then it, you know, then it matters. So if we vaccinate everyone who's at high risk and all the people who are at high risk for transmitting or, 
or um, or receiving like health frontline healthcare workers. I mean, I think that without a doubt, you're going to be exposed to sick people, and so it makes sense for you to, to have it at well, some point. Um, right, and we're a vector. Yeah, and you're a vector. I mean, we, right, yeah, you're absolutely someone who could spread it. We may be an asymptomatic vector. I, I was I was very skeptical about whether asymptomatic people transmitted it much at all. But then you know you see this emerging data from viral cultures where they say asymptomatics and symptomatics have the exact same amount of virus. Yeah. Right. You know, they just have a different immune response to it, which is what determines how sick you get, which I guess it is asymptomatically spread. I mean, clearly it is. I just, you know, to what extent was always the question I had. Yeah. And I think we still probably won't, we're not going to really know that for a while, if ever really thoroughly how well, if it's a pre-symptomatic, is it asymptomatic or they, was no one really asymptomatic? They just didn't recognize they had a fever for an hour or something. I mean, you know, it's hard to know these things, right? right to recognize. Right. Right. In most viruses, you, you, your viral load peaks, you know, a day or two before you get symptoms. So is it asymptomatic spread because you never get symptoms? So that would be truly asymptomatic. Or is it, again, like you said, pre-symptomatic, which is, you know, flu, right? You right. go to work, you spread it. Two days later, you wish you were dead. You were so sick. You know, that's standard flu. Right. And I think it's important for people to recognize that the flu is pre-symptomatic spread, right? Like you, you're spreading that you're the most infectious before you you think you're sick. Then you stay home from work. But now you've already sort of done the damage at, at work, which is why it's so effective at spreading all over the world, around the world, right? It's not like original SARS where the guy comes in, he looks like he's dead. You're like, well, I'm not going to get anywhere, you know, can't touch him with a 10 foot pole. I'm going to stay away from this person because they look like they're when they're infectious is when they're super sick. And so it's pretty easy to stop the spread of it. But I guess uh, so then if, if our goal is to prevent people who are most susceptible, most likely to get morbidities, mortality, once we've got that population vaccinated and we think we have a highly effective vaccine so 95% or plus you're going to be prevented from getting the disease uh, then I guess the question really becomes like once you give everyone the opportunity to get the vaccine do we care I mean do we do we really say we got to push it and say make everyone has to wear masks we have to keep protecting everyone or do we just say you know at this point everybody who's had as I had an opportunity to get it let's say we're May June by this point or maybe even July I don't know and maybe even sooner and all the people who are most likely to really have real problems and fill up the hospital have gotten and gotten it. Do we care at that point? I mean, I, my feeling is, you know, I think at that point, you throw away your mask, you set on fire, and you just go and say, you know, everyone's kind of had a chance to, to protect themselves. And it's unreasonable to shut down businesses, close schools, have people forgo all sorts of uh, normal activities of life in order to protect those small percentage of people who are susceptible, who for whatever reason, the vaccine is not going to work. Well, I think the problem is you said reasonable. <laughs> and, and I clearly, I think that's the reasonable thing to do. Um, my problem is, and I've told this to my friends, I said, you know, I go to a tremendous number of rock shows with my friends. It's one of, you know, our main ways of connecting. And, you know, I said, Megadeth is going to have more to do with whether I get this vaccine than work because work is not going to be able to legally compel me. But Ticketmaster can say, I can't buy tickets without a vaccine. And they've already done that. They said, this coming up, year concert season no ticket without a vaccine and that's my concern i don't think this will be government mandated i think it's way too complicated the federal government doesn't have that power the states do um and my concern is you're not gonna be able to fly you're not gonna be able to go to a show um unless you have you know a vaccine and and i think i mean hopefully that changes because i agree with you to vaccinate the most susceptible and the people that are the most potential vectors to the susceptible and the ones that can get the highest viral load because they're, you know, intubating patients, et cetera, et cetera. makes sense to vaccinate those people, get that taken care of. And, and everyone else, it doesn't matter. Let it just burn itself out, which it will rapidly after that. Yeah. I mean, I, we're not going to fill up the hospitals, right? I mean, with a bunch of people who have it, who don't need to go to the hospital. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, it, I would say that there may be there may be some usefulness in testing for COVID for um, for outpatients. Speaking as a pure anesthesiologist here, because I've taken care of someone who had this who was asymptomatic, had appendicitis, youngish person. I know he's like forty something. And I mean, you talk about desaturation after 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 apnea. I mean, it was profound. And uh, now he had appendicitis, and so maybe he wasn't taking deep breaths, whatever. But he clearly was affected by COVID, even though he didn't know he had it. And so, um, so I think there's, you know, some utility maybe having testing and stuff like that in the future. But I, I also wonder it, what sort of, and maybe I need to have an attorney on, I mean, I, from a constitutional standpoint, can you require people to have certain health procedures in order to participate in commerce? I don't think you can. Uh, 
Um, I mean, I know they'll try and you can always do anything for a while until you're told you can't. But I, I wonder if that's even a, if that's even something that can, that can persist. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I mean, I surely hope not when I, I, I saw that like two or three months ago. And of course I sent it out to my concert crew and I'm like, well, you, I can't tell you what I said, <laughs> but, um, it, I, that was just a mind blower to me. Um, and again, I think, you know, you got to follow the money. There is a point too where they're going to go, okay, they can tell you whatever they're going to do. And if no one buys tickets to the show, they're going to change their, their tune very rapidly, especially when you've had, you know, by March 12th in Oregon, that will be a full year of, of, you know, large gatherings being completely locked down. Uh, and you, you know, there's going to be so much pressure from the consumer, from the artist, from the venue. I mean, there's a whole bunch of moving pieces just in the concert world. And then you add that into travel and to cruise ships and to all the rest of this, um, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting, but again, you know, you go to an endemic area, you get a yellow fever vaccine. You want to go on a Caribbean cruise, you get a COVID vaccine. I mean, I could completely see that happening. Um, but again, by that time, if we've had seven or eight months and tens of millions of, vac of vaccinations, we're going to, I mean, and people are watching this like a hawk. I mean, there's so much political, you know, energy on having it succeed or having it fail. Right. We're going to have really robust data in just a very short period of time. So it, it may not matter. It may just burn itself out. And it's like, yeah, okay, I get a free vaccine and it doesn't, you know, I got a fever for two hours. Who cares? It's worth it for, you know, a mosh pit. I don't know. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because I and I don't know that you have required to have, I mean, are you normally required to have vaccinations when you go places that have endemic, you know, yellow fever? I mean, it's recommended like when you go to like Africa, you know, you have you know, the yellow fever and some other things, but I feel like it's not required for traveling, but I could be wrong entirely that. They'll let you in the country. It's not up to us. It's up to them. So the country's just, but those are other countries, right? I don't, yeah. Yeah, like if you a certain... That, that's my understanding. Now, again, you know, yellow fever or malaria, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah, really like anti-vax for that. <laughs> like, like, you know, and, and generally people that are going to travel to those kind of areas are like, yeah, yeah, you know, do whatever I can to protect myself, you know. Um, but um, yeah, I think I think it's actually I think it is. I don't know that it's required by the United States, but I think it's required by the I think you have to have the stamp with your passport when you enter the country. But I, I could be wrong. I haven't, haven't gone to a. I've traveled a lot, but not to a malaria or yellow fever endemic area. Well, let's shift one last time. Why did you tell me what your plan is for BSMD? So you've got a new podcast. You starting with your wife. You guys have been doing Facebook lives for a while. Where you, well, <laughs> it's BS free, <laughs> where you guys talk about various healthcare issues. Uh, what where do you see the show going, and um, what do you have lined up for to start the year? Yeah, uh, the first couple episodes, we'll do kind of, a, you know, who are we? Why should you listen to us? You know, will this be entertaining or a waste of your time kind of thing? And then I really want to get into the, uh, the I think the next, the next episode is going to be, why, you know, why did you go into medicine? I mean, again, we're targeting this primarily to physicians. And I think it's really important to kind of look at, you know, why am I doing that? Why, how did I get here? You know, there's a tremendous amount you know, of talk of physician burnout and all the rest of that. And I, and I think history is very powerful and our own personal histories are really powerful. And so May and I will explore that and it'll be fun and hopefully funny and, and engaging. Um, and then I was going to do an episode on the vaccine and basically talk about what we talked about today because our inbox from former patients and friends is blowing up. Like, what do you think? What do you think? Yeah. And, you know, what I think is we should be really cautiously optimistic. And I want this thing to be as safe and effective as can possibly be. I mean, why wouldn't you want that? You know, um, so we'll, we'll do that. And then we'll start going through um, what we want a lot of and what we really love is questions. So questions from physicians, you know, how did you stay married for 29 years? Um, what did, what's, you know, what were your secret? What, like, how did you balance kids? You know, is work-life balance really a thing or is it, you know, a unicorn? Um, we'll do a lot of that kind of stuff, you know, discussing, you know, our faith and our, and uh, our passions. Um, I have a lot of eclectic hobbies. I used to, um, when I turned 40, I started a fundraiser event where I did 10 action sports in one day, windsurfing and barefooting and skydiving. And, you know, I have about 600 skydives. So I've, I've seen a lot of different 
things with regards to risk as well, which I find fascinating. Um, ridden motorcycles all over the United States and Canada and, and um, you know, so a very different look. Um, my, my tattoo to degree ratio is quite high. So <laughs> this will not be your typical uh, physician discussion. Uh, we've lived in a in small town. We saw it really as kind of almost a mission field, lots of poverty, um, but lots of tremendous experiences, uh, helping families, young families, um, and really seeing a lot of different medicine, like just from, you know, death investigation. I, I, I had one day where I did a death investigation on the way into work at, uh, on a call. Um, saw one of my, my buddy's wives who was just going into labor and then held the hand of somebody who was dying all within a span of, you know, an hour and a half. So an eclectic mix um, where, again, no BS is allowed. And what we mean by that is I don't believe that I have all the knowledge by any means, but I, we will endeavor to be as honest as we can. And if you want to call us on it and debate it, fantastic. Uh, we sure don't mind because I think the more we can kind of get out of our shells and really discuss things and have good, open, respectful conversations, the more encouraged we're going to be. Um, you know, there's it, it's not easy practicing medicine now, but it's still very rewarding um, and, and very worthwhile yeah. and very necessary. Well, I appreciate it. And I totally believe everything you said since you're wearing an Iron Maiden t-shirt. So um, yes. very eclectic, <laughs> which no one can see obviously in the podcast. Uh, Dr. Heinmarsh uh, from BS Free MD. Thanks so much for being on the show. You can find links to your show and to social media contacts. It'll be located at the paradox.com slash 109 or 109. And uh, we'll talk to you again. You bet. Great. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it a lot. Thanks again to Tim Heinmarsh for being on the show. And I want to again share with you that you can find the Doctors Unbound podcast in your podcast app. If you have a minute and you're not driving, look at the podcast app on your phone that you're listening to the show. Search for Doctors Unbound, click subscribe, and that's it. Thanks for supporting fellow physicians as they pursue incredible lives out of medicine. See you there. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. 